Good evening, and welcome to the September 2020 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, last month we aired the first of a two-part series looking at the failing trust in law enforcement and questions about systematic racism in the profession. It's not a secret that LGBTQ members of the profession have struggled with law enforcement culture for decades. Now tonight, our guest is a straight ally who's an African-American man and a seasoned member of law enforcement. Dale Peters is the host of a radio show and video cast called Black in Blue. It's a series he created to highlight people of color who are working in law enforcement. We'll talk with Dale about his own perspectives as an African-American and a police officer. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, September 27th, 2020. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of September 27th, 2020. A Republican lawmaker in Illinois is apologizing for racist and homophobic comments she was caught making at a fundraiser against her Democratic opponent. State Representative Amy Grant represents the state's 42nd House District, which is in DuPage County, located right next to Chicago. She was caught making fun of her opponent, Democrat Ken Meha Beal, who is black and gay, saying that he will be, quote, another person in the black caucus and because of the way he talks, which is, quote, all LGBTQ, end quote. When asked by an audience member what she meant, she said using in a sing-songy voice, quote, it's not because he's black, it's because of the way he talks. He's all LGBTQ, end quote. And then she added, quote, he wants to work for the chronologically ill. He just gives us like crazy, end quote. Grant's campaign said immediately after the recording was made public that she did not give permission for it to be recorded, even though the fundraising call opened with a statement telling everyone that it was being recorded. Grant later apologized in a statement saying, quote, I deeply regret the comments I made about Ken Mayhabil and reached out to apologize to him this morning, end quote. Grant took office in 2018 when she won the general election against her Democratic opponent with a thin 52 to 48 percent margin. And last week, as the nation mourned the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Donald Trump called into Fox and Friends on Tuesday morning, and the topic quickly turned into the political battle over Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg's vacant seat. After the notorious RBG's death, her granddaughter related the judicial icon's dying wish from shortly before her death, saying, quote, My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until the new president is installed, end quote. But Trump took the opportunity to call Ginsburg's granddaughter a liar on national television, claiming the declaration was a hoax by Democrats, dreamed up by his political enemies. The White House started reaching out to far-right organizations last year for suggestions on possible conservative replacements for Ginsburg, who had battled cancer multiple times before passing away last week. Justice Ginsburg was the first U.S. Supreme Court justice to officiate a same-sex wedding. And on a lighter note, at the 72nd Emmy Awards last Sunday night, the show Shit's Creek took many of the top honors, including the top honor of Outstanding Comedy Series. The show was created by father and son team Eugene and Daniel Levy. Daniel is an out gay man who not only created and wrote for the series, but also played the eccentric out gay character David Rose. Daniel Levy took home three Emmys for his writing and directing, while his father Eugene took home the award for lead actor. In his speech, gay actor and co-creator Daniel Levy called Schitt's Creek, quote, the greatest experience of his life, end quote. Schitt's Creek, a Canadian series, concluded its sixth season run this last year. 
The Feel Good Show, which began on CBC before finding a larger audience on Pop TV and Netflix, has become an international hit, especially with LGBTQ plus audiences. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Our guest tonight is the creator and host of Black and Blue, Dale Peters. He created a video podcast about people of color who are working in law enforcement. And while the majority of police in America are still straight, white, and male, there are men and women of color working in the rank and file of agencies large and small throughout the United States, many of whom are also LGBTQ. But what about the public perception of pervasive and systemic racism? And what do officers of color see and feel? Well, Dale is here to share his own perspective with us tonight as a police officer and an African-American man. Hey, Dale, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Greg. Well, it's great to talk with you again, and I really enjoyed being on your show, which we'll talk about later. Um, And it's great to continue this conversation uh, that we've been having about kind of what's going on with law enforcement and the public's perception of law enforcement and Last month, we talked about sort of the LGBTQ perspective, but I want to broaden out uh, this conversation um, and get your perspective. But before we get all to that, um, talk about what brought you into law enforcement and and give us kind of your history. Okay. Um, Well, my history is not as as drawn out as as you would think. Um, You know, I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, and I'm the only child to a single mother who, uh, you know, uh, brought us up from the, you know, the just above poverty line, uh, went to school at Ohio State and got a degree in, in commute, computer science and, you know, rose us up into, you know, lower middle class uh, status. So, uh, you know, growing up, I, I grew up around all sorts of people in Columbus, Ohio, you know, mostly, mostly white and black. Um, and then she moved us out here to California when I was 14 and uh, we moved to, to Glendale and you know i grew up around all sorts of people there and in my high school there was a uh, a school resource officer that was that was really uh instrumental in in how i looked in law enforcement um he was he was really personable a really cool guy and uh so i i I thought my career was going to be in journalism to tell you the truth Uh, you know i was big into sports Mm -hmm. still am at the time i was the editor of the school newspaper um was going to go to Cal State San Luis Obispo, uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in journalism. Um, so all that I thought was going to be my path in sports journalism. Uh, but after high school, I got a job uh, as a security guard in the Glendale Galleria at the mall there. And we worked at Glendale Police Department had a uh, substation there. So we worked mm. close, closely with those officers. And, and I saw, you know, uh, got to work with them, got to talk to them on, on a daily basis and, and got to see, you know, the, the different sorts of things that they went through on a daily basis. Uh, went to a l- couple ride-alongs, and then then I was hooked. And then you were hooked. Yeah, and that was it for me. So, <laughs> yeah. That's a very familiar story. And it's interesting that you've gotten to pursue your passion for journalism now with your own show. Uh, you know, for me, it was all about wanting to be a teacher until I went on that one ride-along. Yeah. And then, you know, had a great career and now circled back and, and I'm teaching full-time. So it's... Uh, it's great to be able to do both things. It is, yeah. Uh, so talk about where you're working now. 
Okay. So I work for the uh, Redlands Police Department out in Southern California. Uh, it's in the Inland Empire. We're about, uh, let's say, 70 miles, 75 miles east of Los Angeles uh, in between Palm Springs and L.A. I've been there 15 years. Um, right now I'm assigned as a school resource officer for one of the local high schools. Been doing that for about a year and a half. Uh, so I just got started in that in, in that role when when COVID hit. Oh. Now, yeah, so now the schools are closed. We're, we're, we're still kind of, you know, feeling our way through that. The, the district just started back with distance learning this week. So, you know, we're still helping out with that. We're still trying to figure out what our role is going to be in the distance learning, um, whether we're going to be doing home visits because, you know, school districts, they get they get paid uh, for butts in seats. Right. And now they're going to be counting logins as butts in seats. So if uh, if the students aren't logging on, they're probably going to ask us to go in a little Johnny's house and say, hey, little Johnny, you haven't logged on in three days. Uh, you know, you need to log on, you know, that sort of thing. And we're doing, you know, a lot of CPS, that's uh, uh, child protective services, uh, referrals, you know, for, for abuses and things of that nature. We were doing that before, but we're going to be uh, doing that more heavily, I- I'm sure, uh, because, you know, kids are home and parents are home and they're, I'm sure they're getting sick of each other. Sure. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to yeah. be doing a little bit more of that. So, excuse me, that's where I'm at on that. So, Again, I circle back to kind of what motivated you. I mean, it's got to be pretty fun for you and exciting for you to be doing the job that inspired you to get into this business in the first place. Yeah. um, You know, I wanted to let let me circle back to when I first wanted to get into the job. I was, uh, I'd say about 19, when 1920 ish, when the Rodney King incident happened. Mm. And, uh, you know, being a black male, you know, I, I, I say I had, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say good relations or, or experiences with the police, but, uh, you know, non-existent. And then when that happened, you know, I kind of felt like we didn't mean me, uh, we as in uh, black people didn't mean much to society out here because that's, uh, they also had the Latasha Harlan's incident. We, uh, they had another incident out in Riverside um, and all of these officers were acquitted and I, I could feel that along with the rest of the black community, uh, what was going on, what, what we could feel for that. So I decided, you know, I wanted to be a part of the solution and not just uh, burn down the whole system. I wanted to be a part of the solution. So if I become a law enforcement officer, maybe in my sphere of influence, um, some of these things wouldn't happen. You know, I can't change the world, but I can change my little bit of part, my little piece of it. So uh, that was my motivation Aside from the other things that you know, it's it's a it's a cool job. It's it's a lot has a lot of variety and all of that sense, and and you want to help people, yeah. But you know, I wanted to make sure that I was part of the solution, not the problem. That's awesome. So talk about the demographics a little bit of Redlands PD and the city. How does it compare? In other words, does the rank and file look like the people that the department's serving? I would say not. Um, Redlands is a city uh, just under 100,000 people. Probably is, it is growing, but uh, we'll see what the census numbers show here uh, in a little while. It's predominantly Caucasian. Um, I would say the next is Hispanic. And then uh, we've, we're probably about 8 eight to 10% uh, African-American mm-hmm. and then other as well. Uh, in my police department, we're, we're just under 100 sworn, and I would say there are five, five African-Americans on the department of, of a city and department that size. So um, 
probably statistically we are, but uh, you know there there are a lot of Hispanics in the department, so you know we can uh, even that out with uh, you know brown officers as well, uh, a few Asians and and things of that nature. But uh, probably as far as African Americans, I would say we're just about statistically uh, what the what the city looks like. But uh, you know, I would of course love to see more in the department. Sure, sure, and 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 it's. It's more than just a numbers game, right? It's not about just hitting certain benchmarks. There's real importance for having a police force that looks like the community. Yeah. Um, and I would say, you know, uh, like I said, there's there's five African-Americans on the department, but the department has never had an African-American promote past uh, the next step, which is corporal detective. We've never had a sergeant or above uh, that's been African-American. So that's... And that's really detrimental to, to what the department and what the what the city looks like and what they see out there. Oh sure, representation, yeah, it, exactly. And it's about representation and it's about leadership, and it's about uh, making sure that people know that their views, experience, perspectives are being represented in the in the decision making that's yeah. that's being done. Uh, what's your sense? Is it because people have left? It, are, are the the African American uh, officers younger and becoming eligible to promote, or do you think that there is something in this system of promotion that's standing in the way? You know, we've we've had some discussions about why we think that is in our department with with management. Um, like I said, my department uh, they've been good to me. Uh, you know, I'll tell you a story in a little bit about you know they they've hired me twice, so I've been there twice. I've uh, every assignment I've put in for, I've gotten. So you know, there's no sense. That, that uh, there's any discrimination there, but you know maybe just uh, just intrinsically, they don't have a sense of you know what African Americans want out of their police department. So they haven't really really gone out to to, to recruit them mm-hmm. uh, within the community. Uh, really gone out of our way to 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 embrace African Americans in the community. Uh, you know we have uh, coffee with a cop events. Uh, say at a at a local co- local coffee shop here in town, but those those aren't coffee shops where African Americans are are frequenting. Uh, we need to be more in the community so that they can see us. Um, you know, it's easier said than done. You know, back in the day, we used to actually have a, a, a an RV that we would go out into the community on a certain day of the week and park it and and play play games with the kids. And you know, economically now, you know, we and another a lot of other departments out there can't do that type of stuff. Uh, you know, just for you know, we don't have the bodies, we don't have the money to do so. But, you know, when I started back there 15 years ago, that, those are things that we were doing in the community that we're not doing any longer. So I'm sure those have, you know, long, long-reaching effects of why we're not getting African-Americans in the door. Yeah. And I think, you know, and this is not this is not about trying to crucify or criticize one department, right? I mean, there's no, five, six hundred agencies in the state of California, but it, but it's an example. And I think you just hit a nail on the head for me about why we're sort of in this quandary uh, across the country in terms of communities' relationships with law enforcement. We invest in things like those programs you were talking about, spending money on putting cops out to play with kids, to connect, to talk, to establish a relationship with the community. And then either because budgets get cut or because we think there's something more important to do, we say, well, we're going to put that touchy-feely stuff aside and we go out and do whatever we think is more important, and then something like George Floyd happens, and then we wonder why the community doesn't believe us or trust us anymore. Yeah. 
And then, and sort of that cycle. I mean, the same thing happened after Rodney King. I distinctly remember that. There was this whole push towards getting back to community policing. Um, I was involved in a pilot project uh, with the state and, and our local academy in Napa, you know, to infuse all of these ideas back in. And it was all great. And then we got away from it. Yeah. And then uh, Ferguson happened. And then we had actually one of our own graduates, uh, Meserly, get involved in that tragedy at the Fruitvale BART station. Wow. And yeah. then we wonder why people don't trust us, because we've forgotten about the importance of going out and connecting and forming relationships and it's work that has to be done constantly. So I think it's about deciding that that is an important expense to invest in. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and like we said, that's, that's a phenomenon across the country. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of what the, I would say, the defund the police movement is about. Not yeah. necessarily, uh, you know, they, they use poor choice of words when they say defund the police, when they actually mean move funds from some funds from here to more social programs, which is what used to happen back back in the day when, you know, there were social uh, programs, after school programs that were that were out there. I remember being a kid and we could go after school, you know, to the local Y or to the local uh, daycare center and, and hang out. And, you know, those those programs are gone. So where are these kids of single parents? Yeah. Where are they doing? They're, they're out on the street now. So, uh, you know, these these programs that were out there benefiting the community that aren't there, you know, they're shifting the money or the responsibility now to the police because, you know, now the kids aren't there. We've got to parent your kids when you know, other people could be, you know, helping out with that. Sure. So so tell me about some of the other assignments uh, that you've had. You said that you uh, were hired twice by Redlands. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> my journey uh, in law enforcement, uh, my first job was with the U.S. Border Patrol. So I worked there here in California for four years back in the 90s. Um, and then I went from there to the UCLA Police Department, and I worked there for about a year. Um, and then I came to Redlands. I lateraled over to Redlands PD. Um, so this was about 2000, 2001-ish. Mm-hmm. But going back to when I was in the Border Patrol, I decided to pursue my career and finish up my bachelor's degree. So I have a, a accounting degree, a bachelor's in accounting from the University of Laverne. And in one of those courses, they had a special agent from the IRS Criminal Investigation Division come in and give a talk, a recruitment talk, about, you know, what they do and trying to recruit, you know, accounting majors into that profession. I would say I was probably the only one that was interested <laughs> in that conversation, you know, because I was already, like I said, I was a board sure. at the time. And uh, so I actually pursued that and applied for that job. Um, but... That process was extremely long, two years long. Okay, so fast forward again back to 2000, 2001-ish, when I was hired by Redlands PD. I would say I had just gotten off the field training program when the IRS called. So so I decided, you know what, I'm going to do this. the, the prestige, you know, special agent, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. all of that, you know, that, I don't know if you know about that agency, but that's the, the precursor, the predecessor to the ATF. So yeah. they're the ones who actually, uh, arrested Al Capone. Uh, so it's, it's a really good agency. Um, so I did that for five years and decided <laughs> this is it for me, uh, it, because a lot of it was sitting behind the desk. Uh, you weren't affecting, uh, people's lives on a, on a daily basis. It's more of a macro level, and most federal agencies is like that, which is a, a real admirable profession and mission. 
but you don't affect, you know, uh, children on a daily basis. You don't affect, uh, you know, mothers on a daily basis. So I wanted to get back to the local level, and that's when I called the chief back to Redlands PD. And, and all you listeners out here, is a lesson in not burning your bridges on your way out the door. Um, you know, I asked the chief, hey, I'd like to come back. And he saw what sort of a hard worker I was when I was there previously, and he welcomed me back. So I've been back for 15 years. So um, within that 15 years, I've done, like I said, a number of things. I've yeah, and, and IRS helped me out on that. I was on a drug task force um, for a number of years, a uh, major drug task force, and you know, being an accounting major, uh, obviously and a special agent with contacts in, in the federal uh, system gave me uh, a good edge up on that and help me with that career, with that uh, assignment. Um, I was in investigations and of course they put me on property crimes and frauds when I was in investigations. So, and I did really well on that and, uh, and now I'm an SRO. Great. Wow. You've really got quite the background. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and so there's a lot of perspective, I think, that you have to offer to talk about what's going on right now, especially with your experience in the border patrol. I mean, this conversation about what's happening with law enforcement really could not um, exclude what's also happening with immigration and, and sort of the inter- the activities of ICE and the Border Patrol and all of that because it, it, it feeds the compromise of trust with local law enforcement, doesn't it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they have a really tough mission and, you know, their mission changes in the, within the political whims that are, yeah. you know, that are happening at the time. So when I was there back in the 90s the, during the Clinton administration, um, our mission was a little different. Um, we were more of a catch and release sort of agency, mm-hmm. um, it, which I'm sure they are now. It's been a long time since I've been there. But, uh, you know, the mission was a little, uh, little more active. So we would go out and we would catch groups of illegals and we would uh, process them and release them back to their country of origin. Um, so... But now I think the focus in the in the current administration is more criminal aliens and going out in cities and and rounding up those people as well. And when you go into the cities, you know, you can kind of uh, imagine what that kind of does to the citizenry there where, you know, there's a lot of fear when you go into these uh, immigrant communities and they see ICE and they see, you know, Border Patrol out there rounding up people, you know, but they're rounding up criminals. Uh, they're not going, you know, just taking mothers and, and, and children away from. I, I know you, you see that in the media, but I'm sure they're not out there doing that. They're out there trying to rouse the criminal aliens that are there. But nonetheless, those those images, you know, they can really be detrimental to to, to a community. So a lot of uh, law enforcement agencies don't want to participate with uh, with ICE and, and, and their activities and their mission. So, um, you know, you see a lot of. We used to have uh, detainers in the jails. So, like, if it was a, uh, a criminal that, that was brought in for, for DUI uh, it, and he was fingerprinted and shown to be wanted by immigration, uh, immigration would put the hold on him and then immigration would come and pick him up once he served his time for mm-hmm. DUI, what have you. Uh, a lot of those things have gone by the wayside now just because agencies don't want to uh, cooperate with ICE. So it, it's a real shame. Yeah, and it, and it really does put local agencies in a bad spot because the average citizen doesn't know that. And when the when somebody looks and sees uh, a jacket that says police on the back, they don't know whether yeah. it's local police or whether it's a federal agent, and so they just react to the word, to yeah. what they see. Yeah, 
Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and uh, talk about the perception that I think is out there. It's probably pretty wide at this point in time that there's racism in law enforcement. Um, and I've had this conversation with neighbors. I've had it with a lot of folks. And they'll say, you know, why is there so much racism in law enforcement? And I asked them, I said, well, well, tell me why you believe that. What, what is your evidence that there's pervasive racism in law enforcement? And they can't really put their finger on it other than to cite some examples of things that they've seen on YouTube. So from your perspective um, and your experience, what do you think? Does racism exist in this profession? Of course it does. I mean, it, it exists in every profession out there, you know, whether it be in, med in the medical field and education. Is it as pervasive as, you know, one would like to think from the media coverage? No, I wouldn't say that, but uh, it, it is out there. Uh, you know, I've had experiences myself. You know, I'll tell you a, a quick story about Please. Um, when I was first trying to get into law enforcement. Uh, I applied for a job because I was still going to school at the time at a junior college. I was applying for a civilian job as a police cadet with uh, a local agency. I'll leave their name out of it mm -hmm. uh, for this story. But um, went through the process and ended up being number one, ending up number one on their list to get hired in this position. A month or two went by, three months went by, four months went by, and I hadn't heard anything. Um, so I got another job with another department doing the same thing. Um, fast forward a year later, I get a job, I get a, uh, a telephone call from that first agency. And it was the internal affairs department of, uh, uh, division of that department. They tell me, uh, first they asked me if I was still interested in the job that I applied for before, uh, because the captain that was in charge of hiring at the time, when he got my packet, he determined that he didn't want to forward it on to human resources because I was black. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, and the, know. and the IA person, the, the person that called you actually told you that. Yes. They actually told me that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I guess either that captain either got fired or, uh, I don't, I don't know how this came out, but yeah, they, they determined that, uh, you know, he, he had probably done this to a, a number of applicants over the years and uh, so then it finally came out in an investigation and, you know, they told me and they offered the, the job to me at that time, which I already, like I told you, I already had a job at another department. But, you know, just me personally that, you know, something like that happened to me and, and not being able to get a job at a department because someone didn't like the color of my skin. And, and I reacted that way, not because I think listeners are probably thinking, well, yeah, no big surprise. That's that's probably commonplace. I reacted that way because I think it's very unusual for an agency to admit that, that that yeah. happened because it opens them up to a lot of uh, civil litigation. Sure. It was sure. nice that they offered you a job, but the damage had been done. And so admitting that, that's, that just is almost unheard of. Yeah. 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 I was uh, in my late, uh, late teens, early twenties at the time. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know why they they actually told me that, uh, but they did, and they offered me the job, and, you know, the rest is history on that. Well, racism is something I think we talk about that can be systemic. It can be part of the culture and institutionalized. And I know, having taught in academies now for 34 years, it's not something that's taught, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously to listeners, but I'll just say for the record, it's not something that's taught. 
I've taught at multiple academies. I've never seen it taught. And so how does it happen? How does it manifest itself, do you think, in an agency's culture? Well, it, it has to be handed down. Uh, you know, the, the people that are actually indoctrinated in the culture at the time when, they, when new people come in, they're indoctrinated into it as well. Uh, and that's why it's important to bring in new faces into, into you know, departments, into agencies. Uh, you know, we talked about, you know, looking like the communities in which you serve. If there are more minorities within a department, and not to say that, uh, you know, just being uh, Caucasian officers, uh, and because you got to be a, a good-hearted person regardless of your race, right? So, you know, but if we can bring in more, uh, more Asians, more Middle Easterners, more gays, more lesbians, more blacks, you know, into a department and, and make it more diverse, uh, these things wouldn't happen as frequently as they do. And th these sort of cultures can begin to die out. And we also have to promote members of those communities Absolutely. into decision-making and management roles Absolutely. Yeah. in order to change that culture. Because it's, it's much more difficult to change a culture as a line-level person, I, I think anyway, than it is for, say, the, the managers, the captains, the, and the chief. Yeah, absolutely. But again, if there are large numbers of, you know, whatever group within a department, you can begin to change these things because things wouldn't be acceptable regardless of what a chief or a commander thinks. You know, mm -hmm. if you have, uh, you know, a group of officers that speak out on a policy on a policy or culture or whatever's happening in a department, that can definitely change regardless of who's at the top. So let's talk about, yeah, no, I, and I agree with you. I, I do think everybody has a role and a, and a part to play in that from the line level all the way up. I've yep. heard some recruiting officers and, and managers talk about how, well, we try to recruit uh, people from the LGBT community and from the African-American community and the Asian community, but we don't get any applicants. Uh, or we don't get qualified applicants is also a common thing that I hear. So what's the answer for that? Yeah. You know, um, I wouldn't say lowering standards, but, you know, this, this has to go back all the way back to, you know, if you really, you have to be uh, really, you have to really want to recruit these people. So, you know, say like, uh, you know, there are uh, officers that are out in communities patrolling, doing their job, right, uh, in lower economic communities. Uh, if you make a traffic stop, and you cite someone for, you know, uh, no taillight or running a stop sign or what have you. And they don't take care of that and, they're, and they're, uh, their ticket goes to warrant, right? And they don't have the money to pay for that warrant, okay? And now they're arrested. Fast forward five years later when they want to become a police officer and they go through the background. Now they have a warrant in their background. Mm -hmm. And that was because, you know, a, a silly ticket that they didn't pay uh, five years pr prior, those sorts of things aren't happening in in communities, more affluent communities, right? Um, officers aren't hard hitting the streets of, say, you know, the the, the higher echelon communities, you know, say like in, in in Redlands or or wherever up in Napa, right? So these sorts of things that applicants have to deal with, you know, can come back and bite them in the butt later because. You know, they don't have the money and, and these sorts of things. So these things need to be overlooked. I would, 
maybe not overlooked, maybe that's a little strong, but they need to be taken in consideration. In the grand uh, context of the person. Yeah. They, yes, exactly. On a case-by-case basis. What, what's usually is said in these background interviews is we don't look at one thing uh, and, and take it for, for, for gospel. You know, these things are shown to, uh, you know, they look at, uh, is the person learning from their mistakes? Are they, you know, at, yeah, you, maybe you tried marijuana five years ago, but are you still smoking today? You know, these sorts of things, you know, you got, sure, you got a traffic ticket, you know, 10 years ago, but are you still committing the same sort of traffic offenses today? Are you still getting traffic tickets and warrants today? So those things are what should be happening, looking at, you know, the, the history of learning. Um, but is that happening? I, I don't think so. What do you think about the idea that the recruitment process itself isn't communicating correctly to potential applicants? And, and I'll share this quick story with you and then see if it, if it makes sense. I went up to uh, Calistoga High School, I don't know, a few years back. Uh, Calistoga is on the very far north end of Napa. I don't know if you've been up there. It's kind of a resort town. They have mud baths and spas. and Nice. That's a really cool place. But I was talking to, with the high schoolers up there about careers in law enforcement. And it was largely um, uh, a South American Latino audience. There were a few white kids in there. There were no African-American kids that I remember. But I asked the group, I said, you know, what do you think that the, the successful law enforcement officer that we're looking for looks like today? And to a person, they said, a big, bald, white guy. And I knew at the time that Napa PD was recruiting, and they were desperate for Spanish-speaking officers. They had one at the time. And I thought, oh, my gosh, there's this huge gap between what potential applicants, and especially young people, think the system wants and what the system says it wants and needs. So it's one thing to put on a flyer, you know, women and minorities encouraged to apply, sort of that standard boilerplate language down there. But if, if a young Mexican kid or a young gay kid or African-American kid doesn't see themselves or even think that they would be considered, then they're not even going to apply, no matter what the words say. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that's kind of my role as a school resource officer, when, a school resource officer when we're in session, um, is to getting out with the kids. I, you know, I make it a point, you know, to get out and, and talk to the kids during lunch and passing periods and, and, and letting them know that, you know, I'm a regular person, just like the people that they know in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we talk about sports, we talk about music, we talk, you know, about rap. Uh, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm a big rap music fan. And, you know, so I'll debate, you know, what's, you know, uh, my, my era of rap music versus their era of rap music. Mm-hmm. And, so they can they can see that you know hey you know cop this cop here at least uh, is one of us you know he he looks like us he talks like us he, he understands uh, the the things that we've been through and if you can kind of get that in their in their psyche now when they're younger maybe when they become you know of age 21 25 uh, they can think of a career in law enforcement yeah I think you hit the nail on the head the fact that they see you and interact with you. They, yeah. have a, they have an image that they can look at and go, this looks like me, and this person's successful, so maybe I can do that too. Maybe I would yes. be accepted there. Absolutely. Um, on your show, we talked about uh, being lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. In your perspective, uh, you're a straight guy. And um, so 
I think it's interesting to, to know from your perspective, how have you seen the profession change and what's your experience been with LGBT folks working on the job? You know, um, you know, I haven't really seen much of a, of a change. I, I, and again, I can only speak from my department. Um, you know, my department is, is pretty uh, open-minded in, in everything. Um, so we have a few uh, open gay and lesbian officers on my department. Uh, one, I'm an, also a field training officer, and uh, one of my recent trainees is an openly gay male. And, uh, you know, we would sit in the car for hours on end and just, just talk about things. And, uh, you know, and he's a really good young officer now in the department. Um, so I don't think there's been a change, at least in my area, uh, as far as things going from, from bad to worse or from, from bad to good, uh, because maybe it just wasn't something that, you know, these, these officers talked about. They spoke about. I know we had some officers and yourself talking about that on, on, on my program is that you just didn't talk about it before. Maybe that's the only difference is that these officers are able to come out and, and talk about who they are and their experiences uh, off of off of the job. Uh, that's probably the only difference I see as far as any discrimination, any off color remarks or anything like that. Uh, you know, um, I don't hear it myself, at least. Mm-hmm. I, and I think. You're right. The change has been that people have been able to be out, either come out on the job and be successful or apply yep. already out and and be hired. That's a big change. Yeah. Just sort of systematically. But, I don't know about your individual agency, but but system wide, that's a change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, I would go from agency to agency, depending on, you know, the culture of the agency. Again, like I said, my 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 agency is pretty progressive and pretty open minded. Uh, but if you get a more uh, macho tor- uh, sort of agency, would that be accepted or not? Not just accepted, but would uh, would there be problems uh, with that officer in, in that sort of agency? I, you know, I don't know. It has have things changed in those sorts of agencies? You know, I, I don't know. Um, all I can speak for is my department, and you know, we've we've had. Uh, Officers come out and, and bring their significant others and, and talk about their significant others uh, to family events. And, you know, it's it's all been one just one big family. Yeah, and that's great. I think that's the that's really the the uh, the beauty of being on a smaller department. Like I said, we're about 100 sworn. Everyone knows each other. Uh, a lot of us know our, our spouses, each other's spouses and significant others and kids and and fathers and grandfathers and, and all that. So maybe it's just a. Uh, just a part of, you know, being in a smaller department. I, you know, I really don't know. Yeah, and that's really, 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 really great to hear. Do you think training makes a difference? You know, we're doing a lot of training, or we're starting to do some training in the state around LGBT awareness. Um, has your department, have you ever been trained formally, or did it just sort of happen organically that, that people were okay and at ease with it? I would say before, no, we weren't formally trained. These, these things are, are starting to become... Uh, more prevalent now in, as far as trainings uh, through post uh, the peace officer standards and training uh, commission yeah they're mandating uh, different trainings and, and LGBT is is one of those trainings that you know uh, we have to take as well uh, but prior to that recent within recent years no uh, so it just had to have been uh, organic within our culture where uh, discrimination of that sort wasn't tolerated yeah I, I yeah. can tell you a little bit of in, in the basic academy level, at least at, at our academy in Napa, one of the 
areas of emphasis that we're, we're placing uh, in the cultural diversity and human relations area is the importance of bringing your whole self to work. Okay. Because it, it, it provides um, expertise, knowledge, experience, and a depth, I think, to the rank and file that's important. So, for example, if you're a Muslim officer uh, and you have a work colleague who gets maybe called to a mosque, doesn't know anything about Islam, you become a resource to that person. If you're an out gay person on the job and you uh, and a colleague, straight colleague, for example, gets called maybe to a domestic violence situation that's more complicated with a same-sex couple, you become a resource. Um, and Clearly, with, with race, it's more visible. It doesn't have to be stated. But those invisible differences, those invisible identities, those individual um, aspects of who you are, if you don't share those, if you're not out about them, then that experience, that expertise, that background, those skills, if you will, become lost. Sure. But how do you, how do you balance that? How do you say, um, you know, you have a same-sex domestic violence situation um, call the the you know the gay or lesbian officer come to come out and handle it. I mean, that that doesn't seem right either. No, I, no, I understand. But there may be if you haven't been trained or you don't feel comfortable or you've got questions about terminology. It would be great to know that you've got a point of contact to go to to say, hey, tell me, I heard this word pansexual. What does that mean? Sure. Uh, yeah. And not that we expect every member of, of a particular group to be the spokesperson. Um, and the expert on the topic, but if I don't know that I have that resource available, then we're we're at a loss, I think. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, let's shift to the external community a little bit and get back to where we're at right now in this country with uh, law enforcement and community relations. You know, to me, it's really the heart of this problem is a lack of trust. And I don't know how to fix it. How do we how do we tackle this? How do we make this better? I mean, we've we've got a dozen plus examples that are cited. Everything from as you started off talking about Rodney King, uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson, Oscar Grant at Bart, and George Floyd, just to name a couple. Mm-hmm. And collectively, those events have decimated the trust in law enforcement. How do we fix it? Well, we've got to get back out there and. And make ourselves vulnerable to, to being able to be trusted again. We have to be out there on a daily basis commit, connecting with our communities and letting them know that, you know, and be transparent on what we're doing. That, that's the only way. Uh, you know, these incidents happened in the past, and unfortunately they're going to happen again. What, what people need to realize, though, is that, you know, law enforcement is a pretty nasty career. It's a pretty dirty career. Things aren't going to be pretty on, on a lot of instances. So uh, taking uh, instances to an extreme, uh, saying that, you know, this is happening only because uh, this person was black or this person was gay or this person was a Middle Easterner, uh, that that needs to be quelled as well. But we need to be out there as law enforcement letting letting our communities know that, you know, we're we're human. We make mistakes, and when we do, we're going to correct them, and we're going to be held accountable. And that's the only way we can get back to, you know, getting trust in our communities and in our departments. The only way. Yeah, and it seems so basic, and yet I think there are a lot of law enforcement executives that just find it overwhelming and complicated. 
um, and yeah. and they and they just haven't they haven't invested in it. And so now we're looking at a bunch of legislation in California, and voters are going to be asked, our listeners are going to be asked to make some decisions about whether they think these ideas are good or bad. And there's what a dozen different bills. I think we were talking before we started this conversation about some of the bills that are out there. Many have already been passed. So I want to get your take on a couple. Last year, one of the most significant bills in my mind was the change in uh, use of force laws in California, really shifting from what was legally possible to a limitation of just what's necessary. And it seems perhaps subtle, though the, the language in the section is multiple paragraphs now where it was very, very short before. Uh, what's the impact that you've witnessed and experienced with that change in use of force laws? You know, we haven't uh, noticed much in, in our area as far as any changes in laws yet. Um, I can see it forthcoming. But, uh, uh, you know, we talked about chokeholds earlier, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the impending ban on chokeholds. I can say, you know, at least in my agency, you know, we haven't used chokeholds in, in, in eons. Um, but to, to place legislation to say that you shall not, under any circumstance, use a chokehold, I, I think is, is, is just as detrimental to an officer and to the person where the chokehold is used. Sometimes, you know, a chokehold can, can be the only way to, to stop a situation. And if it's used correctly, that's, that, that's the, the key term. If it's used correctly and the, after, the, the care after uh, the person is rendered uh, unconscious and, and detained and making sure that person gets medical attention, then that's the safest way to, to handle certain situations. I, I, I say, you know, go for it. Let's do it. But in certain situations, it, it's not always used that way. And, and then, again, these things are taken to the extreme where it's just banned altogether. And, and I think that's just as wrong. So I think the verbiage is part of the problem, right? The, 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 yep. the correct term that we use in training is a carotid restraint versus a chokehold where you're, it implies that you're actually choking someone. Sure. Um, so you, you mentioned martial arts. We're having young kids in martial arts yeah. uh, doing, doing that. Can you explain right. a little bit more about the difference that you see between the carotid restraint and a chokehold? Yeah, well, the carotid is more of a controlled uh, pressure point sort of, sort of move. Um, and again, like I said, in, in martial arts, they, they use these all the time. You see little kids in, in MMA and all that, you know, using these moves all the time. Um, and these people, you know, they come out of it. You know, yeah, you're woozy, but the, the, what, what it's designed to do is to incapacitate you for a moment of time so that you can be detained, uh, so that you can be controlled. Um, a chokehold uh, seems to me like... <laughs> Like it's it's just willy nilly. You just grab the person across the neck, and you're you're trying to choke them, uh, being whatever you're using your arm, your 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 hand, uh, uh, a piece of material, what have you. That's not what law enforcement is doing. We're using a controlled method. Um, it's taught in a controlled manner, and and these are the ways they're implemented out in the field. Yeah, and and until recently, it was very heavily tested. I mean. If you're going to yeah. use that, you've got to be proficient at it, and it's retrained and retested and sort of recertified. Yeah, we we were tested. Like I said, we haven't used it in in a number of years, but uh, I was last at the de- defensive tactics training 
six six years ago or so was was the last time I was trained on that. So I haven't used it personally myself. So yeah, I can I can see what what we're talking about here. Uh, there's a difference, and but a lot of departments aren't aren't using that to begin with. Right. Uh, one of the other bills that's uh, up is something that's going to restrict the use of pepper spray and rubber bullets in protests. So my question is, uh, when a protest becomes unlawful, you know, we're not talking about using it on lawful protests, people exercising their First Amendment rights. We're talking about something that is outside of what the First Amendment guarantees. So if law enforcement can't use pepper spray or rubber bullets, impact type projectiles, how, how does how do we control someone or a group of people yeah. who have gotten out of hand in a protest and become violent? That's the million dollar question, right? Um, you know, when things are getting out of hand and if you can't use the tools on your tool belt, be it, you know, the rubber bullets, tear gas, um, the only thing that you can do is go hands on. And, mm-hmm. and those things look even worse on camera than, say, you know, tear gas and, and getting a, a crowd to disperse. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, if, if they want us to go hands-on, which is more dangerous to the officers, more dangerous to the crowd as well, um, I don't know what we do unless someone comes up with some sort of technology that, you know, is going is to help out in those situations. Uh, I, I don't know what we do. Yeah, I think that's a dangerous one. And I really think that the voters need to think that one through before they uh, put the yes. There are uh, several bills on on transparency, uh, making more visible internal affairs investigations, particularly around use of force. And there are a lot of protections that are important for law enforcement officers in terms of giving them the ability to have some discretion and decision making and be protected for Mm -hmm. those choices. You know, what's your take on transparency laws that make those internal affairs investigations more visible? You know, you know I'm kind of torn there because on one hand, I can see where a community would want to get that information uh, about an officer, how many times he's been involved, he or she's been involved in use of force incidents. Um, but on the other hand, as an officer, uh, are all the facts released on that incident on certain incidents um things can be taken out of context um you know just because you've been you've had i don't know 10 complaints within the year within the past year is that necessarily a a bad thing that you've had those 10 complaints were they founded were they unfounded um all of these things need to be taken within context uh what, what sort of assignment is this person in is this person uh in, in patrol, is this person uh, is this person an SRO? If, if, a, if an SRO has ten complaints, sure. If but if a uh, if a gang officer has ten complaints and they're all unfounded, that that that's a different situation. But um, I, I think these things need to be taken in context, and and they're not always taken in context. Yep. All right. Let me ask you about one more, and that's uh, there's a bill that will provide some required oversight specifically of sheriff's offices. But I guess my question is more broad and just in terms of community oversight, citizen oversight of police agencies. Uh, good thing or bad thing? Uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, you know, theoretically, sure, it would be a good thing. Uh, you know, I know, I know a, a lot of larger agencies uh, have commissions that oversee um, their departments. Uh, 
I don't know how well those those commissions work out. I, I see on the news all the time or different bulletins where uh, they're going back and forth uh, between what the commission thinks and what the, the rank and file or, or the department heads think about a situation. Um, I think they need to be in lockstep with one another if if these things are implemented. Oversight is always, sure, sure, there's always a good good behind oversight. Uh, I, I don't see a, a, a drawback to having oversight, but it needs to be drawn up in a, in a particular way that uh, the oversight isn't overreaching. The, the, the oversight committee has a certain mission. They have certain things that they need to cover that they, that they cover. And, you know, there's, there's uh, feedback from the community on what happens. There's feedback from, from the officers of what happens uh, on this oversight committee. So, on, this, on, the, on the surface, no. I don't, I don't think that oversight committees are bad, but how, how they're implemented, sure. Right. They, they, they need to be specifically drawn up in a specific way so that uh, it benefits everybody. And those individuals participating on those commissions have to be trained. How can you make decisions sure. about policies and protocols and behaviors of, of an individual if you have not been trained on what the law is and you know what, what modern-day approaches to doing the job include? Right. Yeah, yeah, they they have to be trained on law enforcement tactics. Why pl- ride-alongs? Again, let's go back to ride-alongs. Uh, uh, this probably be should probably be a mandate for those commission members to you know do a certain amount of ride-alongs so they can see what happens on a daily basis with the uh, officers that they're they're going to be overseeing right. on different shifts. You know, to, uh, take a ride-along during you know midnights, take a, a ride-along during day shifts so they can see everything on on the operations. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that's going to be a big decision that voters will have uh, coming up in November. Uh, so pay attention. I don't think that's going to be part of it, though. But <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, the, no, that that specificity uh, won't. But but the bill, I believe, spe- uh, specifically addresses oversight of sheriff's offices. Yeah. Um, and and sheriff's offices are a little bit different because unlike a police department where there's a city council that hires a city manager who hires a police chief and perhaps has more control over the leadership, the sheriff is elected. And, yes. and has there's much less constraint control over the leadership of that organization in California than there are local police. Yeah. You know, we have these debates, at least uh, amongst people that I speak with, about, you know, uh, the differences between a chief of police and a sheriff and, and you know, with the, the powers that a sheriff can, can do as far as um, – being told what to do by a city mm-hmm. council, by a city manager, by a mayor. Um, the only the only uh, thing that that a city council, not a city council, what do they call them? Uh, board of supervisors, board of supervisors. Can hold over hold over a sheriff is his purse strings. They can they can you know uh, deduct from his his budget, uh, his or her budget. But other than that, you know, sheriffs can can do pretty much what they want to do. And I yep. can see where this oversight is. Uh, but again, if a city council or a mayor has a certain agenda, then they can hold that over a police chief's head as well. So, you know, there's there's pros and cons to both. For sure. Let's talk about Black and Blue, your show. Tell us yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, uh, I decided I wanted to do a show uh, showcasing law enforcement officers because that was a, a voice and a face that wasn't out there. Um, like I said, I, uh, I wanted to show that we're we're people just like everyone else and and we can uh we can be out there for the public to to trust us to see us and and 
and you can do the same job too if you if you see us. So that's what really what I wanted to get out there. Uh, I know the image of law enforcement, like you spoke of earlier, is a is a uh, bald white male, and I wanted to show uh, different perspectives, different genders, different different sexual orientations, different races of police officers, so they can see the uh, the public can see the whole gamut. So that that was my take on it, and I went full bore on it, and I've uh, been doing this since February, and I, I love speaking to officers across the country like yourself that you know that have, have different experiences and I've, I've i've loved every minute of it it's great and and it is a, a tv style show so there's the visual it's not just radio so you get a yes. chance to actually see the faces of the people that you're talking to what's the feedback yeah. been so far pretty good feedback you know um i'm on youtube so and i you know i do live streams as well and and people get to see the feet the the, the people that are interacting with the audience, and I've get, gotten some pretty good feedback uh, from across the country. Um, people within law enforcement are are willing to jump on. I was pretty pretty amazed at that at first. That you know, people from you know chiefs from chiefs of police and and sheriffs all the way down to you know rank and file were were willing to come on and and share their experiences and and the feedback has been great. Great. Well, I think it's a spectacular show. Um, I've enjoyed being Thank a guest you. on it, and I've enjoyed watching some of the, yeah. the episodes that you've produced so far. Uh, where can people go to learn more about Black and Blue and watch the episodes? Sure. You can go to the website. It's at uh, www.blackinblue.us. That's B-L-A-C-K-I-N-B-L-U. I know a lot of people say uh, think it's and blue, but it's in blue. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Black and Blue US, uh, Facebook, the same, uh, Twitter. I'm all over social media, so uh, check it out. You're doing it right. And if you missed any of those websites, we'll put them on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. We've been talking with Dale Peters, who's a police officer in Redlands down in Southern California and also the founder and host of Black and Blue. Dale, thanks for all you're doing. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. And that wraps up our hour. Next month, the annual Matthew Shepard Foundation Gala will take place, but of course not in its usual format. It'll be broadcast worldwide over the internet, and we'll bring you highlights from this year's event on our show. It's always inspiring and amazing to hear Judy Shepard share some words, and we might even hear from this year's honorees, including Lily Tomlin. In the meantime, tune in next Sunday night to Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. Have a great week. And thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. You're broken down and tired Of living life on the merry-go-round And you can't find a fighter But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out and move on air, online, or on the go. We are Radio 91, KRCBFM Windsor, and K215CQ Santa Rosa, a service of Northern California Public Media. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.